Good morning, Bethel. We're going to read our scripture reading now and pray. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 54. Isaiah chapter 54. If you don't have a Bible or if you're unfamiliar, you can grab one from the pew in front of you. It's the black book there, and you can find our passage on page 614. Isaiah chapter 54, and if you wouldn't mind, please stand in honor of God's word. You can follow along as I read. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, so we are going through a series on Isaiah, um, walking through this big Old Testament book. It's a deep, rich mine, but it does take some work sometimes to understand what's going on. 
And so if you're not familiar with the book, if you're newer with us, um, just encourage you to hang in there, and um, hopefully you'll begin to see the big picture of this book. Um, the way it starts out, it's kind of broken into two pieces. The first half of the book, over and over again, we see how the people of God had been stubborn and rebellious. And rather than just saying, well, then fine, you made your bed, sleep in it, they certainly were judged for the sin, and they were taken away to exile to Babylon. If you're familiar with the stories of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's how they ended up in Babylon, okay? But God had a plan, and he was going to redeem and comfort and rescue his people. And so the second half of the book, from chapter 40 on, you start to hear all of this good news that Isaiah is laying out there way in advance of it actually taking place. Again, this is prophecy. Um, it came true, but he's laying it out in advance so that God's people, when they finally turn to him, have ears to hear, they're going to hear the good news of his comfort and his redemption that would come through his servant. So we're in chapter 54 this morning, and um, I'm just going to give you a little brief bridge uh, context between chapter 53 and 54 in a second. But before we do that, I want you to just think of something so that we have some of the right uh, orientation as we head into this passage. Imagine, for some of you, this isn't something that you have to imagine. It's personally something you've experienced, and it's probably deeply painful. Others of us may have friends in this scenario, and so you can imagine by knowing them how hard um, this painful scenario is. But a barren couple, a couple that cannot have children. Childlessness is deep pain and sorrow. And so imagine that you have been trying for years and you feel this helplessness and hopelessness and you just want to give up and it just seems like it's never going to happen. And for many, it, it never does. I understand that. But imagine that you are in that situation, especially after protracted just years of trying, and it seems like helpless and hopeless. And then the news comes that you're pregnant. Try to enter into that emotional moment. What does that feel like? And hold on to that as we walk through this passage, okay? So, again... Um, Big book. We can easily get lost, forced for the trees. So I want to just give you another brief um, bit of context so that we can see where we came from because last week's message in chapter 53 is utterly vital to understanding this week's chapter 54. Okay, so <clears throat> as, you, as you get closer to chapter 53 where it talks about the suffering servant, there's all this anticip <laughs> anticipation that's being built up Yahweh is saying that he's going to do this and he's going to do that. He's going to um, make the city of God like Eden again. There's language like that. There's going to be this redemption. There's talk of almost like a second exodus, deliverance from slavery. They're in exile so that you can imagine their ears perking up. And so how's this going to happen? How's this going to happen? How's this going to happen? And he doesn't say how until chapter 53. And then all of those questions are answered in this servant who shows up on the scene. Okay, so mainly, again, who is this person? It's kind of this mysterious figure. You get into chapter 53, the spotlight's turned on, but still it's a little bit hazy. 
Ultimately, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who fulfilled this suffering servant role that was prophesied hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in advance. Okay, so as we head into chapters 54 and 55, the whole point is that the response, how do you respond if, if we are in such trouble and we need a redeemer and finally he comes, here he is, how do we respond? That's what chapters 54 and 55 are all about, about response to what the servant has done. So if you missed last week, you can listen to it online, but that is so central. There's a reason why that's a famous chapter, because it's so central to the book of Isaiah and what's happening. So the work of the servant in chapter 53, and now chapter 54, the response. So let's look at it together here. We'll look at it in, in four points. You can follow along. This, the slides will be on the screen. There's also a, a, an outline in your bulletin. So Isaiah 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So remember, um, we have to go through uh, Babylon in this case to get to Wilmington to understand um, what's going on here. The people of God were far from home. They're in exile. They're in Babylon. And they're being addressed as a barren woman collectively. It's a fitting metaphor. All of their efforts, politically, militarily, and even religiously, to prosper and be secure had failed because ultimately they'd rebelled against God. They weren't trusting Him. They weren't looking to Him. All their efforts turned up zeros. They backfired. They only brought barrenness. Elsewhere in Isaiah, it says that they gave birth to wind. Again, a metaphor for the futility of their efforts. And really, there's nothing new under the sun. When we try to take matters into our own hands and work things out rather than trusting in the Lord, it ends up as a futile business. Okay, So imagine this decimated, shrunken nation in exile. Rather than being fruitful and multiplying, that's what they were supposed to do, right? Rather than being the light of the world and blessing the nations... They were barren and shrinking. So they're feeling like they're in the darkness, they're under a curse, and yet here, after this passage about the servant, here Yahweh is calling them to sing. What? Sing? Like in exile? Well, look at the reason. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. What's that all about? Well, there's a reversal that's about to take place. He's about to turn barrenness into fertility, which, if you're familiar with the Bible, God has a pretty good track record of doing that, right? Remember Hannah? She was barren. Penina, or Penina, was fertile. And God heard Hannah's prayers, and the tables were turned. How about Abram and Sarai? They were barren. They're way past childbearing years. And yet God had made a promise to them. And what did he do? He turned their barrenness. He turned Abraham into the father of many nations. Okay, so here the barrenness of the old covenant people of God will be reversed. And they will, by virtue of a new covenant, a new redeemer, a new savior, this servant of chapter 53, they will become fruitful again. They'll be like the mother of a growing family. 
You know that Paul actually quotes this verse in Galatians chapter 4. Um, you can turn there and see it. The context is a little bit challenging, so we won't get into detail there. But um, you can either listen, or if you want to turn there, you can find it on page um, 974. So Galatians 4.25, he says, The present Jerusalem, meaning the actual city of Jerusalem, the Jews at the time um, of Jesus' time, Paul's time after Jesus ascended to heaven, is in slavery with her children. Okay, they had rejected Christ. They're still enslaved to their sin under the law. But the Jerusalem above, this spiritual city of God, is free. She is our mother. Okay, this is the new covenant. This is the new people of God made by Jesus, by his work on the cross. She is our mother. And then he quotes Isaiah 54. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. So do you see why Paul chose that for a parallel? So Abram and Sarah, Sarai, were barren. God made a promise. And what did they do? Well, initially, they took matters into their own hands, right? Sarah gives Abram Hagar and That's her servant. Hey, sleep with her so that we can have a child by her. Well, that didn't go well. It got really messy. Thankfully, God intervened and gave them the child of promise, the miracle child, Isaac. And through Isaac, the nation of Israel began to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, so God has this pattern of overcoming barrenness and providing children of promise by his grace. Done it more than once, and he's up to it again here. So miracles are afoot here is what's going on. Miracle children of promise made possible by the work of the servant. Look back at the end of chapter 53 at verse 10, and you'll see the connection here. Isaiah 53, 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, the servant. He's crushed in our place on the cross. He has put him to grief. When his soul, the servant, Jesus, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, our guilt, not his guilt, he shall see his offspring. Okay? So how are these offspring born? Well, this is spiritual new birth, right? His offspring are spiritually born. So in John 1, it says that Jesus gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God, born by the Spirit. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. What do you mean? I have to enter back in? No, no, no. You need to be reborn from above by the Spirit of God, giving you new birth. So it's this new miracle family that's going to be produced by the work of the servant on the cross, and it's going to make up not just a little tribe somewhere in the corner, but it's going to be made up of people from all the nations. So the house of God is going to have to have some serious renovation done, some additions put on so it can hold all of the family members. Do you see where this is going? Look at verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent. Again, this is a metaphor, but we can follow this. 
Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. We need a bigger house. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. In other words, you'll be fruitful and multiply. You'll fill the earth. Only the Creator can do that, right? Through new covenant blessing, um, won by the servant on the cross. So <clears throat> here, just practically, imagine if we the size that we are, and obviously we don't fill every spot in the pews here, and you know, financially we couldn't do this. What if God somehow communicated to us and said, okay, you need to build a new auditorium, and it's got to seat thousands? We'd be like, what? What are you talking about? So you realize this word came to people that were in exile. Oh, you've got to enlarge the tents. It seems kind of crazy, doesn't it? Well, it seems kind of crazy to people that are 99 that they're going to have a baby, Abraham and Sarah. But we're dealing with the maker here. We're dealing with the creator, the one who made everything out of nothing. And certainly he can take barrenness and turn it into fertility and fruitfulness. Okay? So he's telling these people in exile to rejoice and start expecting to be fruitful and multiply. Well, well what, if, what if it doesn't happen? That's going to be really embarrassing. Like, we'll be filled with shame. Imagine, you know, Noah, all he had to go on was the, the word of God. It could be pretty embarrassing if God doesn't come through on his word here. I mean, it seems like all we've experienced is failure. Well, here we are in exile. We'll look at verse 4. Fear not. For you will not be ashamed, be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. So, of course supernatural children will be born. Of course they'll be fruitful and multiply. Of course they can be confident and not fearful because this barren, disgraced woman is married to God. <laughs> like, of course we can expect things to happen, not because of her, but because of her husband, because of who loves her, because he's the maker of all people. So who else to make something out of nothing? Who else can bless and fruitfulness and multiplication results. So all this miracle family blessing is based on, predicated on, chapter 53, the person work of the servant. Okay? But as a result of the servant, the response is needed to trust him that he's going to do this miracle work. Look how adamant he is, God is, to cast out our fear and awaken confidence in his people then. And he wants to do the same for us. We can certainly kind of become like Eeyore and just think nothing's going to happen, you know. And we, we have no confidence in God that he can do the miraculous in our lives, that he can use us, that he can make our lives count and fruitful. Well, look who we're dealing with here. Verse 5, for your maker is your husband the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. You see how he just piles the, the name, the character, the names, the character of God 
one on top of the other, to cast out our fear, to awaken our confidence, like this is who we're dealing with here. Our husband is the maker of all things. He's the creator of the universe. He's bound to us, to his people in committed, intimate love like a husband. This is Yahweh of hosts, the commander of the armies of heaven and earth. That's who we're dealing with here. He is the one who is for you if you are with the servant. If the servant has taken your sin, suffered in your place on the cross, and you get his righteousness, then God is for you. <laughs> the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. What? <laughs> so the Holy One of Israel in the book of Isaiah He's the high and holy one who inhabits eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah got a vision of that, got a glimpse of that, and he just felt like he was coming apart at the scenes because he knew he was unholy. And here that high and holy one is our redeemer. I mean, do you know what this idea that redeemer is in the Old Testament, this kinsman redeemer? The next of kin who assumes your need as his own in order to provide for you and protect you? How cool is that, that the high and holy one, the God who inhabits eternity, would become our neighbor, would become our next of kin, would take on flesh and blood as the servant to take our needs on him as his own so that he could provide for us and protect us. That's awesome. High and holy one dwells with us lowly, needy people in order to provide for us and protect us. So he's the God of the whole earth. He's no mere tribal deity. He's not the God du jour, you know, like, well, this one's in style now. No, this is the real God, the only God, and he's ours through Christ. He's the one at work here, at work making this one big, happy, miracle family. And just like God made a promise to Abraham and Sarah, a barren couple, and their offspring became like the sand on the seashore. You know, we could hear that promise, and you can either scoff and dismiss it, or you can believe it and rejoice. So verse 5 makes it clear who the one is who's responsible for these children. These are miracle children born of God. And then verse 5 functions like a hinge, and verses 5 to 10 speak of how great his love is. So as we see these next few verses, verses 5 to 10, 6 to 10 in particular, let's just drink these verses in, finding our confidence in the love of God for us. We need to be strengthened that way. We so often relate to God like a, um, boy, I don't want to throw young teen girls under the bus here, um, but you can imagine the picture of a young teen girl out in the field with a daisy in her hand. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Okay, you might, that might not be close to where you are in your life, but you oftentimes, I can oftentimes relate to God that way. He loves me on my good days. Things are going well. Things are not going so well. I don't seem to be doing so well. He loves me not. What did I do wrong? And then when things are going wrong, we start scrambling. I need to pull the right levers so that God will love me and bless me. 
establish my own righteousness by my own efforts rather than living by grace through faith. And you know what? When you scramble like that, it produces nothing but wind. It's futile. So what we need, (laughs) we need to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that we'll be secure and we will obey, we'll follow Jesus because we've been loved and accepted, not in order to be loved and accepted. So second point, look at the marriage here in verses 5 to 10. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he has called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, like a wife deserted, or as in the case of a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Don't, don't, there's no sense of blame on the Lord here, so make sure you don't read it that way. He's called you like a wife of youth when she's cast off says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you. Again, if you look back at chapter 50, just really quickly, um, chapter 50, verse 1. Do you remember this? If you, if you were here a few weeks ago, thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold. For your transgressions your mother was sent away. In other words, I'm not the unfaithful one. I've been here. You left me. Okay, so there's not blame on God here. He did have to judge them. He did have to turn away from them because of their rebellion. But it's not his fault. It's their fault. But look at his heart here. This is the whole point. For a brief moment I deserted you. I left you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. Compassion is the the emotional love centered in the heart. That's how God feels about his people. And then verse 8, in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. I had to judge your sin. You were so stubborn. You kept stiff-arming me. And I finally, you just were sticking your fingers in yours. I had to give you what you wanted. You, You reaped what you sowed. But he doesn't leave it there. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. So this devotion love that's centered on the will, this is stubborn love, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Okay? So <clears throat> this is what God is like. Is that, is that your view of God, or do you think he's got like this hair-trigger temper, and he's angry with you, and he's got the lightning bolt? Do you know how compassionate and loving God is? Just listen to a couple verses here. These are awesome parallels um, of the ideas here in these verses. Listen to Lamentations 3.31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So he has to be just, and he has to oftentimes give us the judgment that we deserve. But that's not from his heart. His real heart is to give us compassion and mercy and grace. Listen to Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Isn't that awesome? 
One more, Hosea 11. You know this book of Hosea because he likens Israel, his people, as this unfaithful wife. She's been like a harlot. And what does he do? He pursues her. He says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Do you know that's what God is like? <laughs> so you have some of those bad days and you start, start to think, he loves me not. That's the kind of God we're dealing with here. Great compassion, everlasting love. We've been redeemed. We've been married. It's this covenantal bond. Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. He laid down his life for his bride. And he did it so that he would present us to himself forever. So we don't have to be afraid. <laughs> we don't have to be ashamed or disgraced forevermore, like the text says here. Instead, that this perfect love should cast out our fear and yet, if we need more reassurance, let's just keep reading here. Verses 9 and following, 9 and 10. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So these two verses, why do you think God inspired this and put it in the Bible? Why do you think he likened the new covenant, the work of the suffering servant, chapter 53, why, why do you think it's like the days of Noah? Well, how secure is that promise? The promise to never again flood the earth. Has it ever happened? You've got millennia of testimony that you can bank on God's promise. And the same for this new covenant promise. Did you also ever notice that the, the covenant with Noah had no stipulations tied to it? There's nothing that anybody had to do to keep God from not destroy, or from destroying the earth with the flood, right? So it's the most unilateral of the covenants. Has God ever gone back on his word? No. Well, even so, let the work of the servant speak to you, to reassure you, to comfort you. It's really sweet that God would choose this as the analogy of his love through Christ. This is not a he loves me, he loves me, not God. Also, think about Noah. What was the scope of that covenant? It's the whole earth, right? So the work of the servant, the offspring of the servant, this never-say-die love of the divine husband is not for just a select few in one nation. This steadfast love, this covenant of peace is for people ransomed from every tribe and tongue and people and nation throughout the whole world. So, this steadfast, stubborn love, this mighty love of God for his miracle children, his family, it's also the love of a perfect husband. And the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is Jesus the Messiah who loved the church and gave up his life for her. 
So that love produced the covenant of peace that we see there in verse 10 that will not be removed. I mean, do, do you know what peace is in the Bible? Shalom. Oftentimes, you know, we can just think that that means like inner peace or, um, you know, things are going pretty well or maybe it's just a greeting. No, it's so much more than that. In the Bible, shalom is like universal human flourishing and harmony. So, like for instance, at the physical level, if you have cancer and your body is fighting itself, there's not shalom in your body. At an emotional level, if you're plagued by anxiety and fear and you're uh, wrestling internally, you're not experiencing shalom. Relationally, we know that we can have strife and warring and then it goes all the way up to full-scale international warfare, but where does human flourishing come from? It all starts with peace with God. So peace, shalom, is the restoration of wholeness and well-being with God, reconciliation with God. And once we have it with God, it starts to, it starts to just move out and affect every other aspect of life. So Isaiah 48, 22 says, there is no peace for the wicked. Okay, so for those who reject God as their God, this isn't just for the Adolf Hitlers, the sex traffickers, you know, people that we might think of. This is all of us. I mean, apart from the redeeming, rescuing grace of, of God through Christ, I mean, even in the book of Isaiah, the wicked are those who refuse to trust him. So thankfully, he dealt with our rebellion. He, he deal, did whatever it took to break through that. And so what he did was he gave us the Prince of Peace. Remember, he's prophesied back there in chapter 9. And of the increase in of, of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And then Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So once we experience that peace with God, it starts to change everything begins to impact our relationships. We have internal peace. He deals with our guilt and our shame. We're reconciled to God. We don't have to fear judgment anymore. And then we become peacemakers. And that, that peace spreads through us. And we bring the gospel of peace to others who need it as well. And God starts changing everything. And then we know that one day, the Messiah is going to return and set everything to rights and there will be perfect peace from one end of the new creation to the other. The new Jerusalem, like it says in Revelation, will come out of heaven from God. Jerusalem, like shalom, city of peace, okay? So again, all of this is intended to reassure us and breed confidence in our souls. So look at where the text goes from here, the city, this picture of, of a perfect, peaceful city. 54, 11 to 17. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in these gems. I, does that mean anything to you? I'm no jeweler. Precious stones, okay? If you don't know what these things look, look like, you could look at them later. But the whole point is, he's picturing this city that is strong and it's beautiful. Verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness shall, you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, 
That's a pretty relevant word in our day and age. Far from terror, for it shall not come near you. So great shall be the peace of your children. How do you think things are going to go for your children in America if you've got kids? 20, 30, 40 years from now. And I'm not claiming to be a prophet. I'm not trying to be chicken little. But we, and certainly they, could live through some very hard days. Right? I mean, what, what's going to happen with a national debt that continues to skyrocket? What if our economy collapses? What if terror strikes on a scale never before experienced? What if cyber terrorists are able to take down the power grid or some major banking infrastructures? What's going to happen for Christians if they begin to be persecuted more and more overtly? And on and on. Well, look at verse 13 again. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. <laughs> Do you want his kingdom to come? So, so think about this. The, the rabbis, the teachers, the gurus, the experts, they shape the culture, right? Think of imams who preach violent jihad and the cultures they establish when the children are all taught by them. What happens when, in some pockets, especially maybe in Texas, but all over the place in the United States, all are taught by Joel Osteen or some other version of a health and wealth non-gospel? What happens in the culture of that community? What happens when all are taught by white supremacy in some pockets? What happens when all are taught by the sexual revolutionaries? What happens when all are taught in some other countries by witch doctors and, and parents who fear the spirits? What's the culture like? Look again at verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. So I'll take the Lord as my teacher. Anybody with me? So the encouragements continue. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you, literally it says, anyone who quarrels with you will fall away to you. It's a little awkward. What does that mean? It means that they'll desert to you. <laughs> it's a picture of someone who's initially hostile, but then they end up siding with you. I just read a story this past week. Have you ever seen this happen? I just read a story um, of a pastor in India in the Voice of the Martyrs um, magazine. So he had been you know, doing ministry for 30 years and especially among the disadvantaged in India. And um, finally, there were some people that kind of targeted him and they beat him within an inch of his life and they were going to burn him alive. And somebody got wind of it and he, the, the police intervened and so he was rescued from that death. Well, since then, he's run across some of his attackers on the street. So let me read you this little section. Since the attack, Darala has encountered members of the mob that tried to kill him, kill him. He recently saw three of the men who participated in the attack, and the men recognized him. So you are the person who came to the village? The men asked him. Still, do you want to preach the gospel there? Yes, he replied. You are not having fear of death? No, I am not having fear of death. Sorry, forgive us, they said. We have been forced to do this from others. We didn't have intention to do anything to you, but we were forced to do this, so we did. But will you forgive us? I told them, Jesus Christ forgives people, so we also do that, Darala said. The three men then said they would like to learn more about Jesus. 
God will forgive you, he told them. Accept Jesus as your personal Savior. God wants to bless you and your family. And the three men accepted Christ. So, again, this last section is all about security and safety in the, the new community that God is creating through the servant. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. Anyone who quarrels with you, they'll fall away. They'll even desert to you at times. And then there's this final word of encouragement about security and safety when God is for you. Look at it. Behold, I... God speaking, I've created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. I made, I'm the one who made the things you so fear. Those threats, I actually made them. I'm that much bigger than them. Any weapon maker or wielder out there, I made them. So, verse 17, no weapon that's fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me. Or you could actually translate that, their righteousness is from me. (laughs) Which again ties in with chapter 53. The righteousness, that's what we need. Peace with God. It comes through the servant. 53.11, the righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. So this is like Romans 8 in Isaiah 54. It's like saying this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, if God is for us, who can be against us? No weapon forged against you shall stand. So safety and security in this life, even in the face of suffering, and then the hope of the renewal of all things when all things will be made new, this new Jerusalem, city of peace, city of righteousness, city with foundations, when everything will be made new. And it will be peace from one end to the other. And it all comes through the servant. And so we end with the servant and the song. Remember, chapters 54 and 55 show us how to respond to the work of the servant. Respond to the gospel. So, Remember back again how it would feel to be barren for years and years and years and feel helpless and hopeless and then to find out you're pregnant. So how do we respond? Verse 1, sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. So John Calvin, two, two quotes here to finish. John Calvin said this so well. He says, the church is the place where the gospel is preached. Gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy. Happy people sing. But then, too, unhappy people may sing to cheer themselves up. So, Bethel, as we see this response chapter on the heels of chapter 53, oh, the servant's done it all. Look at the character of the God who's in charge of everything, and certainly he's the one in charge of our salvation. How do we respond? We ought to sing. Because 
Gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy. Happy people sing. And even if you're unhappy, you can sing and rehearse the good news to cheer yourselves up. And then this final quote. As we savor the good news of the sin-bearing servant of the Lord, the mountains of frost and ice begin within, begin to thaw, and we learn to enthuse. The gospel of a surprising salvation can only make us laugh, sing, and cheer. Every church should put a notice on its front door. All face-saving moralists take warning. Within these doors, your chilly pride is in danger of melting into exuberant joy. Enter at your own risk. But all sinners depressed with guilt are welcome. Christianity throbs with holy joy for bad people. God made it that way. The test of a church's faith is not only the wording in its creed, but also the gladness of its worship. The gospel demands a carefree spirit. If we aren't going to hell anymore, if we stand to inherit every blessing Almighty God can think of, if nothing can stand in the way of our restored humanness because it's all ours through the merit of Christ, the friend of sinners, if that can't make us smile, what can? So let's close by singing of that good news. We're going to sing on Christ the solid rock. Let's pray. Lord, for those of us that are feeling shaky, would you please help us to feel the solid rock beneath our feet this morning? The rock of your steadfast love, your covenantal love, the warmth of your compassion. And I pray that it would cause us to to sing and shout. In Jesus' name, amen.